right, would you bow with me and let's pray. Father, what a great lead into what we want to talk about this morning on this Father's Day of just talking about the whole idea of serving and serving others. And God, I pray as we turn to your word now, hopefully having our, our minds focused and our hearts tender to what you want to say to us, that God, you might speak, uh, Lord, to us about what our lives can and should be as we follow you and align ourselves with your will. And so, God, thanks that you love each and every one of us here today, that your grace is poured out on us in Christ. We want to soak that in now. We pray that in Christ's name. Amen. So one of the things I think every one of us know is that for like 2,000 years, what Christians have done in every culture that they've ever found themselves in is serve. It's true. They have served others. And the reason that we serve is out of a compassionate, loving heart, but also because when Jesus was on this earth, he taught us and modeled for us what serving humanity is about. In fact, he said at one point in his earthly ministry, I think I have it up here on the screen, he said the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. And when Jesus said those words, that kind of set the tone for the rest of his followers from that point on. And though we don't engage in substitutionary atonement for each other, meaning giving our life as a ransom for people, that only Jesus could do that, the reality is, is that we do, however, serve. And when the Son of God was on this earth, He served and He called all of His followers to serve. Christians have always served. It's part and parcel of how we love and reach out to those around us. And as I analyze our current modern-day evangelical culture, one of the things that I'm actually very encouraged about is that the younger generation of Christians, those in their 20s and 30s right now, really get this. I don't know if you've noticed that or not, but the, the younger evangelicals here in America really are into this thing uh, that we call service. They actually have their own name for it. They call it being missional. Maybe you've heard that term before. It's invaded the church nowadays. Uh, the younger evangelicals say we are, we are in mission, we are missional. And all they simply mean by that is that they don't want the church just to be an attractional place where people come to church. They want the church to be a place that goes out into culture, into the inner city, into the world, into Africa, and, and loves people in the name of Jesus. And, through, and that by so doing, they will be the ones then to reach people through serving them. And the only problem I sometimes have with that whole missional thing is that, you know, when I hear some of the younger evangelicals talk about being missional, they sometimes cop an attitude in which they say, finally, the church is serving. Finally, you know, the church is getting out of the pew and, and, and doing something in the name of Jesus. And when I hear some of the younger evangelicals say that, I do remind them that it was their parents that started World Vision that it was their parents that started Compassion International, that it was their parents that started most of the soup kitchens, that it was their parents that started most of the inner city ministries that we have today, that it was their parents that through the 50s and 60s and 70s became the top world givers when it came to social needs in culture. I remind them of that in not so subtle ways, but I still smile that this new generation at least is totally focused on and on board when it comes to, to serving others as a way of showing Christ's love. Because it is what Christians do. And the reason that we start off this morning on that note is that as we continue in the series that we're in, looking at the values of our church, what make us us, but what you need to know is that the history 
of Scottsdale Bible Church has always been about serving others. It really has. It's been about using service as a way to love others and show them the truth about God. I mean, way before I got here, I've only been here just coming up on five years, but our church is 50 years old. And even way before many of you got here, SBC has embraced a value that we must follow Jesus in serving the community around us. Or or to put it very simply, way before missional became popular, Scottsdale Bible Church has been doing that. It's hard not to brag when you talk about this, but, but no less than 20 to 30 regional national ministries have been birthed out of this church. 30 years ago, Kay Ekstrom, who started Christian Family Care Agency, one of the leading adoption and foster care agencies here in Phoenix, was sitting in our old sanctanasium. And the story is told that she was hearing Daryl preach on this idea of serving and loving others in the name of Jesus. She had a burden and passion for kids who don't have homes, and so she started CFCA. Around that same time, Susan Miller, another one of our members, started a ministry called Just Moved that helps people who move into new geographical areas learn to adjust. Tim Kimmel in the 70s started Family Matters, which works with families in need. John Trent started Strong Families. These are all people in our church on a more grassroots level, thousands of people who claim Scottsdale Bible Church as their local church, have served over the years in places like Neighborhood Ministries, Young Life, Phoenix Rescue Mission, Matthew 25, alongside ministries that works in prisons. We have plenty of our own homegrown ministries here, like our yearly Christmas in the Barrio, or our annual food drive, clothes drive, water drive, shoe drive. I mean, one of the things that brought me to Phoenix here and encouraged me about becoming the pastor of a church like this is that this church serves. Historically, this church has always said that it is through service that we love those around us and catch their attention when it comes to having them stand any chance of them hearing us when it comes to Jesus. Even our missions ministry is all about service. You know, historically, missions tends to be a lot about go tell people about Jesus. And though that's really good that we need to tell people about Jesus, when I first became a Christian 30 years ago, I longed for the day that missions would have a good balance between providing relief work, which only the liberals did a long time ago, and then also being verbal and vocal about the gospel, which only the evangelicals did. And so Scottsdale Bible, one of the things that impressed me here when I came here is that we've married the two. We actually have a group right now in Tanzania this week as we speak, working with the two villages that we have adopted in which we have dug wells and started schools and provided medical relief, all in the name of Jesus Christ. This is the history and legacy of our church. We serve following the path set out by Jesus. We go and meet needs in the name of Jesus. And so we say it like this here at our church, and this is what I need you to remember from this morning, that when it comes to the values of our church that we've been looking at in this series, transformational Bible teaching, engaging worship, authentic community, the fourth driving value of our church is this, service-based outreach. That's what we call it here. It's actually written in stone around here. Service-based outreach. Uh, Simply put, the idea that we marry service and evangelism together and through serving the needs of those around us, we earn the right to be heard. We earn the right to then talk about Jesus in and through our service. Now, 
I want to spend the rest of our time here this morning talking with you about what this means for us as we move forward. What's it going to entail? And what's going to keep us focused and on track as we move into the future, now all of us together as the church? And if you brought a Bible with you this morning, I want you to turn to John chapter 13, beginning at verse 3. John chapter 13, verse 3. And I'm going to read up through verse 17 in just a minute here. If you didn't bring a Bible, that's okay. We'll put the scripture up here on the screen as we always do. But as you're turning there, what you need to simply know about the setting here is that it is high drama. And I'm talking very high drama. Uh, Jesus is getting down to the last few hours of his life before his arrest and trial and crucifixion and resurrection. He's having what, what we've fondly now called the Last Supper with his disciples. He's at the end of his three years of ministry. He's at the end of his teaching about the kingdom of God. And he's just about to enter, enter into the last portion, last week of his life. And knowing that this is going to be his last meal with his closest friends before his death, he wants, them to, teach, he wants to teach them one more final lesson, a lesson that he hopes they will never, ever forget. And in using the shock value that Jesus had been using for about three years now in his teaching, he has one more shocker for them. Let me read it for you, and then we'll make some sense of this. John chapter 13, beginning at verse 3. Look up here on the screen. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, what I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only then, but also my hands and my head. And Jesus said to him, the one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, for he is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was going to betray him, and that is why he said, Not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to him, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do just as I have done to you. Truly I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. Now, I want you to notice two key things going on here that will help you understand the potency of this story. First, notice with me what I call the image. The image here, it's found in verses 4 through 8, where Jesus sets up this whole scene at the meal by at one point getting up from the table and what he does is he walks over to, the, to a servant's area. That's what you need to see, a servant's area. And, and he takes a pitcher and he pours water into a basin. And, and the disciples kind of know what he's just about ready to do, but they're, they're kind of incredulous, if not flabbergasted at this, because then he takes the servant towel and he wraps the towel around his waist. They gave me one much too small, either that or his... 
Jesus was a lot thinner than I am. And, and he takes the towel and he wraps it around his waist. And then he takes the basin with the water and he goes and he washes the disciples' feet and then cleans them with the towel. Now somebody's saying, well, what's that about? You see, back then in Middle East culture, they didn't have concrete, they didn't have asphalt, they didn't have sidewalks, they didn't even have wood gangplanks like we do here in the Southwest. No, back then, they just had dirt roads, and it was the dry, arid Middle East. And when people walked on the road back then, the dirtiest part of their body when they would enter into a house was their feet, because they'd been walking with sandals in this dusty area. And that was kind of gross to people in Middle Eastern culture. It really was. To walk into somebody's house, even though the houses were rustic back then, and to have dirty feet with all the grime and dust of this world on it was not an acceptable thing. And so what was customary to do when you came into a house back then was to have your feet washed because it was the dirtiest part of your body. And who was it that washed feet back then? The lowly, the menial the servants, if you had them in that house. It, it, again, it was kind of a gross thing to do in their culture today. I, I thought of comparables over the year. It'd be kind of like washing somebody's underwear today. I, I know some of you didn't come to church to hear that, but the reality is that's the comparable. Think of the dirtiest kind of gross part that you would not want to be involved with somebody else in today. That might be it. That's what was happening back then. And so please see, when Jesus gets up from the table as a leader, as a religious leader, and washes the disciples' feet, they didn't know what to do with that. That was not something that leaders did back then. And they were dumbfounded at the very least and offended at the very most. And they didn't know what was going on. And so when Jesus gets to impetuous Peter... Peter basically says, in not so many words, what are you doing? And refuses to allow Jesus to wash his feet. And as you know, Jesus responds, now don't miss this, by saying, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Uh, pause right there, because that's the image that we've been leading up to. Uh, Jesus was washing the disciples' feet. And though we're going to link that to service here in just a minute, the image that Jesus is giving them there is the image of God washing away our sins through what Jesus is about to do on the cross. Every great commentator or theologian on John 13 points that one out, that Jesus, through washing the disciples' feet, is foreshadowing what is about to come here, namely his death on the cross that would be for the forgiveness of our sin and that as we accept Jesus into our life, just like him washing dirt off of one's feet, our souls are cleansed from sin that keeps us from God. That's the image that Jesus is communicating here, an image of divine forgiveness through physically washing feet. But notice with me further that this washing of feet, now this is really important, is declared, however, as an act of service by Jesus... He actually was physically serving his disciples. And he says, now you need to do this for each other. So the second thing going on here is not just an image, but then, give me a click here, guys, a call to service. Give me one more click. A call to service. The idea that Jesus came, said that I came here, as we saw earlier, to serve. And you guys now are to serve. 
Uh, Jesus is giving his life for us indeed through washing our sins, but then he's also modeling for us here in this Last Supper for what service looks like to humanity. And, And so just please notice that the basin and the towel here in John chapter 13 communicates two things. The need for us to embrace Jesus and have our sins cleansed, but then also the need for you and I to somehow take up a serving towel to those around us and wash their feet. And that's exactly what Jesus says. To make sure that you take up the serving towel now as a follower of me and serve others. And he says, literally, you're to wash each other's feet. Now, let's try to make sense of that. Because at different points of Scripture, you have to ask yourself, what exactly does that mean? I mean, is Jesus really saying here that we should literally practice foot washing no matter what culture we're in till he comes back and then call it a day and say, there we served each other? I don't think so. Again, if you're listening to me earlier, the reason that Jesus washed their feet is because that was the dirtiest parts of their body. That's where the dust of this fallen world had gotten on them and made them unclean. And so Jesus washed their feet to show the cleanliness, again, that God would bring them, but also then to clean the dirt of this fallen world off of them. And so I don't think the application today is to start pulling off each other's Nikes and tube socks and washing what is obviously a clean part of our bodies in our very sanitized culture. I I don't think that that's the point of this passage. Certainly some traditions do wash each other's feet, and that's all good and fine as a symbolic thing. But but I think the application here, now don't miss this, is for you and I to find intense areas of need and uncleanness in our culture today. And as followers of Jesus in his name, roll up our sleeves, dive in, and serve in such a way that brings relief, makes others feel loved, and bring hope in the name of Jesus to their lives. I think that's the application of this basin and towel image. That Jesus is essentially telling you and me to identify areas in our own culture of uncleanness where the dust of this fallen world has gotten into people's lives. And by serving with love and power and truth, we help clean them up. And that's why I said earlier that that one of the things I love about our church is that for 50 years we've been doing this. I mentioned to you right now, we have a team over in Tanzania, even as we speak, Fred Beasley, our missions pastor, is there with a bunch of volunteers, and they're working in the two villages that we support. And you know what they're doing? They're cleaning up the dust of poverty that has ravished people's lives in Africa. I thought of Wayne Grudem, one of our enrichment class teachers, and on the elder council here at SBC. You know, he regularly teaches on political issues across the world. And you know what Wayne's doing? He's helping clean up the dust of unrighteousness and lack of biblical morality within political structures. I thought of a gal who lives in a wealthy community in North Scottsdale that every week goes down into the inner city. She's from our church down to neighborhood ministries and she serves there. What's she doing? Just volunteerism? No. She's going down there to clean up the dust that poverty has kicked up in the lives of people in the inner city. 
I thought of Mark Upton, again, another one of our elders here at the church who has taken up Kay Ekstrom's work at Christian Family Care Agency. He's washing away the dust of broken families that leaves kids with no homes. I even thought of my life. But one of the things that I love to do as a pastor is that I have an excuse because I'm a minister to not just prepare sermons and go to boring meetings here at church, but, but I have the wonderful excuse as a minister to serve on boards like St. Mary's Food Bank, to go to prisons, to visit people that are homebound. And I got to tell you, every time I do that, I feel a lot more like the Jesus life doing those things than going to a bunch of meetings here at church. Amen? I, I, I mean, that's what it's all about. Following Jesus by taking up the basin and the towel and washing off dust anywhere that you and I can find it. And we call it service-based outreach because as we clean up unclean places, God tends to enter into that environment in ways we never thought possible and reveal himself in his love as we do this. Because you see, when you mix tangible acts of kindness with Jesus-like love and witness, look out because it's a potent mixture that God uses for his glory in helping those around us. And so as we begin to wrap this thing up here this morning, let's put this into very practical terms. Let me just share with you two profound things that happen when you and I dare to take up the basin and towel and serve like Jesus served. The first thing is that serving like this not only tangibly helps others, but it indeed does draw people closer to Jesus. That's the beauty of this. And that's probably the most important thing I need you to see here today is that what we're doing by declaring service-based outreach based on John 13 here is that we're combining service and evangelism. And tell me this isn't true. They tend to be separate things in many churches. They tend to be like, I got my service over here and then I'll be vocal over here. I got my love over here and I got my witness over here. And what we have said here at Scottsdale Bible Church is why can't we bring the two together? That's what we see happening with Jesus. That as we serve, by so serving, it gives us the right to share the love of Jesus with those around us. And even the service itself might be taken as a witness of the love of Jesus. So we're combining outreach and service in such a way that it takes the pressure off of you and me and just gives us hopefully natural opportunities when God lifts it up to say, hey, all this is coming from Jesus. It's a catalytic type of thing that when we dare serve, God moves in our midst. It's probably about eight years ago now when I was pastoring in Cleveland, we had just built a, a brand new facility there. When I got to Cleveland in my church there, it was a very, very small facility and we lived for a couple of years in there, but we quickly outgrew it and we added enough space in which we literally tripled the, the square footage space that we had. And so we had this nice, nice big new sanctuary, and in 2004, we were celebrating being in our new sanctuary, and we didn't want to get too comfortable, so we were doing a whole series on outreach and service, kind of like what we're talking about here in this message. And at one point in the series, I, I explained to the congregation this whole idea of service-based outreach, because the church I served in Cleveland had the identical value that we have here. And I'll never forget a woman came up to me after that, a good friend of mine, my wife's, and, and, and she said to me, well, let's just call her Mary in case they're listening. Her name is Mary, and, and, and nice biblical name. And she said to me, she said, you know, I, I really like this idea 
uh, of service-based outreach. And I'll tell you why, because I'm not the kind of personality that's really vocal when it comes to my faith. In fact, that's hard for me to do, but I know I can serve. And if somehow through serving the needs of others, I, I can then share the love of Jesus, then I'm in. This gal would eventually become so enamored with this idea that her and husband started a ministry in my previous church called Acts of Kindness, in which they got lots of people in our church to hand out water parades and mow people's lawns and just do random acts of kindness and service in order to show the love of Jesus in in the Cleveland area. Uh, But before that, she had another experience that forever marked me. She was driving one day home to her nice neighborhood in the east suburbs there of Cleveland, and and as she was driving home, she, she realized that one of her neighbors, we'll call her Sarah, was in trouble. Sarah was probably in her early 50s. She had been diagnosed with stage 4 metastasized breast cancer, and she was dying. And she was lonely, and there were needs in her life. And so Mary stopped at Sarah's house that day and just said, what can I do to help? Sarah said, well, you know, one of the needs we have is just some financial needs because, well, you know how all these things go. And so Mary decided to do a community garage sale in which she'd get people to donate things at the, there, and, and they had a big garage sale at Sarah's house, and all the money would go to, to help with the medical expenses and other things. And, and this thing became so big and popular that it caught the attention of those in the community, and obviously it was even on my radar. After that event, Sarah became somewhat interested in spiritual things. Does that surprise you? I, I, I mean, to have a neighbor take that kind of interest and to serve in that way, she just started to be interested. And she had very little spiritual background. And so Sarah and Mary started to come to see me a couple times. And we'd talk about spiritual things and just casually talk in my office about God and Jesus and how Jesus fits into life. And at one point, Sarah accepted Jesus Christ as her Lord and Savior shortly before she died. I got the honor to do her funeral. We did it in the foyer of our church. So we had a big, beautiful atrium with lots of light coming in. And, and we did her funeral there. And it was just a glorious, glorious home going. And at one point, Mary came up to me after that and said, it really does work, doesn't it? It really does work. that When you love people in the name of Jesus with no agenda, just, just loving them, God tends to do his work through that kind of love and through that kind of service. And I thought, absolutely, it works. It's really what it's about. You see, some of us today, we we feel so much pressure to always have to witness and evangelize. You ever sense that in the church? Like like we feel pressure to sort of slip God into a lot of conversations. I I feel that pressure. When I first became a Christian, I think I've told you guys this. I mean, I was part of an evangelistic organization that actually taught me how to uh, obtrusively insert Jesus into any conversation that I was in. So, you know, you're in a room and, you know, no, no one's talking about Jesus. And you say, how many walls are in this room? And they say, four. And you go, that reminds me of four spiritual laws. And off you go. <laughs> you know, and I, I learned how to awkwardly insert Jesus into any conversation that I was in. And, and if people didn't invite it that, you just point blank say, Daryl, are you interested in spiritual things? And they're going to usually say, well, somewhat. Well, let's have a chat, you know, and off you go to the races. But let's face it, that's kind of an awkward thing sometimes. I heard a comedian recently, Paul and I were listening to, who said, you know, I was on an airplane, this guy was not a Christian, he was on an airplane the other day, and he said, you know what the most awkward question is on an airplane? You want to talk about Jesus? He's like, no, I don't. You know, leave me alone. But that's Christians, that's what we do. You want to talk about Jesus? And some of us feel that pressure. 
And yet I'm not sure that God wants us to feel that. Now, does God want us to talk about Jesus? Absolutely. Does he want us to to let people know about the hope that we have in Christ? Certainly. But please see, part of the beauty of how God has designed this is he said, act first, speak later. Can you and I do this? Act first, speak later. In fact, it's going to be through your actions, through your love, that people just might be willing to listen. It might even be through your actions and love in which people say, what's gotten into you? Of which your answer is, the Holy Spirit. Can I tell you about him? See, I learned how to do that in the early days. But the reality is is that you and I are going to get opportunities in and through our service. Service is what tangibly draws people to Jesus Christ as we give them a cup of cold water in his name. And the reason that we know this is so powerful, and I don't mean to, this is the only negative thing I'm going to say all morning, is I want you to think about what would the church would be like if we took service completely out of the equation. Think about what our church would be like if we stopped at value number three that we talked about last week. We have great teaching. We have wonderful worship. We have really good small groups that connect everybody. And we never serve those outside the church. Would you be proud to call that the church? Probably not. I I, I mean, don't get me wrong. Teaching is wonderful. It's my thing. I love worship. I love being involved in intimate community with other Christians most of the time. I, I really enjoy that. But the reality is, is that without service, and I think we'd all agree with this, it somehow doesn't feel complete. It doesn't feel like the Jesus life until we roll up our sleeves and begin serving even the most undesirable around us. And one of the cool things about this is that God will use your service, be it ever so small or be it ever so big. He he uses it all. Oswald Chambers, the great devotional writer, says it this way. He says, there are no such things as prominent service and obscure service. It's all the same with God. So he takes every small, random act of kindness that you're willing to show somebody on a Monday morning, and he takes the huge project that we're doing in Africa, and he knits it all together and says, I want to use you. I want to breathe Jesus in and through you as the hands and feet so that you, so that I might have my glory and purposes shine through you. And I will say, the only thing that makes service any more potent is that when it's so grace-filled, when it's so undeserving, that it's almost ready to be labeled radical. I will say that is a unique and wonderful kind of service that I think Scottsdale Bible Church people could probably learn to do a bit more of. You know, we've read it so long that I don't think we really get it. Did you guys realize how scandalous it was when Jesus hung around Matthew, the tax collector? Do do you all understand that? I I mean, I I, I got people mad at me in the first service. I'm sure when I said that would be like me going to a bar with Howard Stern. I I mean, honestly, what would you do if you found out your pastor is going to a bar with Howard Stern? I can promise you, like 80% of you would go, what is up with that guy? Has he gone off the deep end? I mean, I hope he's going to witness, because other than that, I mean, what's he doing? And I'm telling you, when Jesus started hanging around Matthew, the tax collector, and then went to somebody's home, a tax collector's home, that's the bar bar part, and and started to celebrate with them, 
You've got to believe that was scandalous in that culture. But what was Jesus doing? He was simply modeling for you and I what it means to reach out to the least reachable in our culture. That's what Christians do. We're to be reaching out to anybody and everybody with the love of Jesus Christ. And quite frankly, the more awkward it seems, the better it probably is when it comes to what Jesus would have done. Some of you will remember this. I, I, I do because I've been a Christian now for 30 years. And I know I'm dating myself with this stuff. But back in the late 1980s, there was a couple of scandals that rocked the evangelical scene in, in America here. It had to do with Jimmy Swaggart, a, a Pentecostal preacher. And then the other one was Jim Baker. Some of you remember that. I mean, he was like at the heights of his ministry called PTL, Praise the Lord, in which he was building Heritage USA and these big theme parks. And he was on the TV and all this. And then there was a sexual scandal and a financial scandal at the same time. And eventually, after Jim Baker's ministry completely crumbled, he was indicted on like nine counts of fraud when it came to the financial scandal of his ministry, and he was sent to jail for 20 years, and eventually got out on parole after about six. After he got out of jail in the mid-1990s, he wrote a book that I was initially skeptical about, and the book was entitled, I Was Wrong. I got to tell you, if you ever write a book called I Was Wrong, I'm probably going to read it because that kind of title catches my attention. If he had wrote a book like called What God Taught Me in Jail, oh, come on, you know, or something like that. Uh, but a book entitled I Was Wrong, I, I bought it for $3.99 at, at, at Barnes & Noble's on sale. And so I, I, I bought this book and I did read it. It sits in my office to this day. And there's actually a very, very touching scene. Of, of, of what God did in his life as soon as he got out of prison. I want to read for you right out of his book here. That had to do with Ruth Graham. Ruth Graham is Billy Graham's wife, who's now in, in, with the Lord in heaven, Ruth is. And uh, Ruth Graham is just a godly, wonderful woman, the wife of probably one of the most, the most prominent evangelists to ever uh, represent Christianity in, in one's culture. And uh, at one point, the Grams befriended Jim Baker, put their reputation on the line, and ministered to him, even after all he'd done to hurt Christianity as he was getting out of prison. Listen to the story he tells. He says, when I was transferred to my last prison, Franklin Graham, Billy's son, said he wanted to help me out when I got out with a job, a house to live in, and a car. It was my fifth Christmas in prison, and I thought it over and said, Franklin, you can't do this. It's going to hurt you. The Grams don't need my baggage. He looked at me and he said, Jim, you were my friend in the past and you're my friend now. If anyone doesn't like it, I'm looking for a fight, which sounds like Franklin Graham. He says, so when I got out of prison, the Grams sponsored me and paid for a house for me to live in and gave me a car to drive. The first Sunday out, Ruth Graham called the halfway house that I was living in at the Salvation Army and asked permission for me to go to Montreat Presbyterian Church with her that Sunday morning. When I got there, the pastor welcomed me and sat me with the Graham family. There were like two whole rows of them. I think every Graham, aunt, uncle, and cousin were there. The organ began playing, and the place was full except for the seat next to me. Then the doors opened, and in walked Ruth Graham. She walked down that aisle to the front of the church, and she sat next to inmate number 0740758. I'd only been out of prison for 48 hours, but she told the world that morning that Jim Baker was a friend. Afterwards, she had me up to their cabin for dinner. When she asked me for some addresses, I pulled this envelope out of my pocket to look for them. 
In prison, you're not allowed to have a wallet, so you just carry an envelope. She said, don't you have a wallet? I said, yeah, this is my wallet. She walked into the other room and came back and said, here's one of Billy's wallets. He doesn't need it. You can have it. He would go on to say that he never felt more love, never felt more transformed than when the Grahams reached out to him in that way. I don't think there were people lining up to welcome Jim Baker out of prison, do you? And he did a lot of harm to the evangelical cause. I think the way a lot of Christians would think, they might think, well, I hope prison did him good. Hope he thought learned a lot of good lessons. And then the way most Christians think, they would have said, we'll see. We'll see if this change is, is, is going to last over time. But not the Grahams. Instead of judging him, they embraced him. Instead of scolding him, they welcomed him into their church and their home. And instead of saying, I hope you learned your lesson, they gave him a new wallet and loved him in the name of Jesus. And I think that had a lot to do with what I think was part of his transformation. You see, you and I have a lot of choices each day when it comes to those who bother us. I mean, again, we can choose to judge them, avoid them, shun them. And quite frankly, most of them probably deserve it. No one's saying that you're wrong. It's just that God's way is usually a way of grace, not a way of judgment. It's a way of embracing, not a way of shunning. It's a way of serving, not a way of avoiding. And God says that when we take up the serving towel, we actually can be a part of changing a human life as he now can do his works as we are his hands and his feet. Serving helps others, and it draws them to Jesus. And then secondly, and with this we're done, serving provides meaning and purpose to those who serve. You know, one of the things that, that I hear a lot among Christians is that, you know, we're still kind of a disgruntled lot. Have you ever noticed that? Well, we are. I'm reading Exodus right now in my own quiet times, and I'm reading about how the Israelites, you know, had gone through the ten plagues and come through the divided Red Sea and been given manna and all the other stuff, and God provided every one of their needs. And what did they do? Say it with me. They grumbled. I know it's hard to picture, but church people, they grumbled even in the midst of that, that they were still disgruntled in the midst of all of God's provision. And I think many times you and I can admit to struggling with that today, but I can tell you, one of the things that will keep you from grumbling and feeling discontent, and I don't miss this, is serving. It's really true. I tend to not grumble when I serve. I tend to grumble when I'm sitting in my office reading a book. I tend to grumble when I'm in a meeting trying to decide something. I tend to grumble when I'm watching TV at home. I hardly ever grumble when I'm serving. What is it about that? Well, I think it's because through serving that we had meaning and purpose to our lives. Now look at Romans 12, verse 4. It says, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. And then it talks about mercy giving, teaching, speaking truth, encouraging, helping, serving. And it talks about all the different gifts that God has given to each one of us. And it's through these gifts that we find that sweet spot spiritually in which we can then say, I have more meaning and purpose to my life. Serving truly does allow us to have better hearts and spirits, not just seeing God work around us, but seeing God work 
in us. So the only question I want to leave you with here today, but it's the $10 question, is what are you going to do with this? What are you going to do with this? As we've already established, Christians historically have served. It's a kingdom value. As we've already established, this church for 50 years has a track record of serving. It's what Scottsdale Bible Church is known for. So as you and I move together as one church now into the future, I said, God, what's it going to be for you? I promise you this week, you will have at least a dozen opportunities to either judge somebody or serve somebody, to either shun somebody or to love somebody, to, to, to either show justice or grace. You have ample opportunity to put this message into practice. There's some sermons that honestly I give, and, and when it's over, I'm kind of like you. I'm like, well, that was a good sermon. Wonder what we're going to talk about next Sunday. And then there's other sermons that I give where I just beg God and say, oh God, may this one not fall on deaf ears. May this one not be missed by the average person of Scottsdale Bible Church. And this has been that kind of message. This is so critical to who we are as followers of Jesus. I just hope that at the very least you're given cogent thought and analysis to your life and whether or not somebody would ever put on your gravestone, he or she served, or he or she loved me in the name of Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the grace and truth that have come to us in Jesus. Thank you for that scene with the serving towel. And I pray, God, that as each of us have the choice and the option to take up a serving towel or not in our lives, that we would choose to do so. That, God, when we see the dust of this fallen world sprinkled all over somebody around us, that, God, we would not be shy to clean. We would not be shy to serve. And through serving, watch you work in their lives. God, I know that this is fraught with difficulty because as we get involved in serving others, it can get messy. But, Lord, messy spirituality, then it is. And, God, may we see your movement as a result. And I pray these things in Jesus' holy and precious name. And we all say together. Amen. God bless you. Happy Father's Day. We'll see you next Sunday.